leaving. This gospel has Jesus back in the temple preaching to the crowds who have gathered to listen to him and listen to him teach a new way to live and a new way to love. This, of course, does not have the scribes and the Pharisees very happy, for they are invested in the ways of the past, for they are the keepers of the Jewish law. See, in those days, they were considered to be the greatest among all, and they were held up to be the brightest people of their time, and thus they enjoyed being in a position of power. They had established a system of a religious government that shunned and shamed the unclean, the sinners, and the uneducated. So in their eyes, this Jesus, who is living and preaching a new way to live and gaining all the attention, he had to be dealt with. So they set out against Jesus with what seemed to be a well-laid trap. Situation concerns, as you heard, a married woman caught in adultery and the Jewish law dictating that she must be stoned. But Jesus is aware of the inequity that sits behind these charges. See, in Jewish law, only the unfaithful wife was charged with adultery. The husband, on the other hand, could only be charged if the act was witnessed by two other men and the husband of the woman. Being a rabbi, Jesus knows this to be the case. And independent of her guilt, He recognizes the injustice as well as the lack of compassion and the utter shame being thrown onto this woman who's about to lose her life. So Jesus is faced with answering the question of what should be done with this woman. See, the dilemma is Roman law prohibited the Jews from extracting the death penalty when it was a sentence dictated by Jewish law. So they had to either reject the law of Moses or the law of the Roman authorities. If he insisted on having her stoned, then he would have to answer to the Romans. If he pardoned her, he would be accused of siding with her, thus being an accomplice in the eyes of the Jews. Indeed, it seems to be a perfect trap. There's no way for Jesus to answer the question without being found guilty of either breaking Roman or Jewish law. So we all know, rather than give any answer, he begins to write in the dirt. You know, much has been written over exactly what Jesus was writing on the ground. The most popular theory, supported by scripture scholars, tells us that most likely Christ began to write out the sins of the accusers. But notice by doing this, he doesn't shame them. He didn't call them out and call their sins out to the public. But like that miracle of mixing the dirt with his saliva and placing it in the eyes of the blind man, he again touches the earth, now opens the eyes of the accusers, that they too are sinners, no different than the woman. And then he invites those without sin to cast the first stone. One by one they walk away, until Jesus is left alone with the woman. What a powerful moment it had to be as this humiliated and petrified woman who was about to be stoned to death faces Jesus. Placing no shame on her, he first says, I do not condemn you. Then he says, go and sin no more. In other words, go take ownership of your life 
and where necessary, change it. And isn't that what Lent's all about? Isn't this the same revelation we heard in last week's gospel, made by the prodigal son as he tended to the pigs without even being invited to eat their slop? He made a decision to take ownership of his life, to commit to change and to repent to his father, his father who recklessly and unconditionally gave his love and forgiveness to both his sons. But don't miss the point that these Gospels make. Not only are they teaching us about our call to repent and to make a change in our lives, but more importantly, Christ is teaching us what God's love and mercy is like. It was Meister Eckhart who said, God is greater than God. Like the adulterous woman, we need to renew our own sense of God and of God's forgiveness. We need to discover our God who will wipe away our tiny sense of worthlessness. Our challenge is that we create a God in our own image in every way possible. Therefore, it's so hard for us to even imagine disapproval and shame that doesn't seem to be a part of God's being. God is simply too busy loving and forgiving. Theologian Belden Lane said, Divine love is incessantly restless until it turns all woundedness into health, all deformity into beauty, and all embarrassment into laughter. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were at the L.A. Religious Ed Congress in Anaheim, some 40,000 Catholic and Christians come together. It's incredible, including 15,000 teenagers for four days of talks and incredible liturgies. Every year I go, one of my favorite speakers is always the Jesuit Greg Boyle. For over 25 years, Father Greg has spent all his energies working with gang members in the greater LA area. Founder of Homeboy Industries, he has helped thousands of young men and women who he calls homies to find and live a productive life outside gangs. His work and his stories are chronicled in his book, Tattoos of the Heart. Let me share one of them with you. All through scripture and history, the principle of suffering the poor is not that they can't pay rent on time or that they are $3 short for a package of Pampers. As the Jesus scholar Marcus Borg points out, the principle of suffering the poor is shame and disgrace. It is a toxic shame, a global sense of failure of the whole self, a shame that can seep so deep down. I once asked a homie after mass at a probation camp if he had any brothers or sisters. Yeah, he says, I have one brother and one sister. And then he's quick to add with emphasis, but they're good. Oh, I tell him, and what would that make you? Here, he says, locked up. And that would make you, I tried again, bad, he says. You see, homies seem to live in the zip code of the eternally disappointing and a need for a change of address. To this end, one hopes against all human inclination to model not the one false move, God, 
but the no matter whatness of God. We seek to imitate the kind of God you believe in, where disappointment is, well, Greek to God, where we strive to live the black spiritual that says God looks beyond our fault and sees our need. I think many times we're no different than the homies that Greg works with. For out of our broken selves, darkened by shame, tainted with disgrace, overshadowed by questioning our worthiness, we need to be reminded that the Lord comes to us, disguises our lives. God in you, with you, through you, despite you, loving God. An unconditional love which we cannot earn, but we only need to allow. A love that requires only willingness and not willfulness. But we spend so much time assessing ourselves and others, and yet we have a God who doesn't measure and must wonder why we do. I love the term that Greg pens, the no matter whatness of God. For it is this God who loves us no matter what, the God who wipes away our shame, the God who fills us with the same mercy as Christ gave the woman who was about to be stoned, the God who prefers a relationship with you versus being right, the God who calls for us to let go of our past, of things long ago consider not, so that God can do something new in all of us. In the end of the gospel, we hear that everyone walked away. The scribes and the Pharisees departed. The accusers left, and the crowds dropped their stones, leaving only the woman and Jesus facing each other. And so it is with you and me. For this is the relationship we have with Christ, where there is no shame, only forgiveness. No shunning, only acceptance. No stones, only a warm embrace. No admonishment, but, call, but the call to see our own imperfections. The call to change our ways. The Lenten call to let go of our past and to be open to start each day anew in the unconditional love of our good and gracious God.